Hey, everybody, this is Mark Levine, and you're listening to episode number seven of the NYC Real Estate Podcast. Today, I am flying solo, meaning I have no guests. This is actually the first episode that I've got that I have no guests, and it's just going to be me talking to you. And what I thought that I would do, what would be perfect, would be a welcome to the board episode. So if you are new to the board of directors or managers of your co-op or condo, or maybe you have been either voted in at an annual meeting or you've replaced somebody that's uh, resigned or has left the building, this is kind of a perfect little primer on what you should do. It's gonna We're going to talk about your documents, your procedures, the limitations that you have as a board, as a board member, anything else that may pop up from time to time. Uh, during your quote-unquote reign as a board member and working with management and working with and for your shareholders or your unit owners. So before I get started, if you want to send us an email to the podcast, we love getting those. And I've gotten a few so far, which is great. And you can do so at nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. And I love taking real estate questions Love answering them, and I'm sure that if we get enough going, we'll find some way to in, integrate them into future episodes. So the way that you get onto the board, it could be a few ways. I kind of alluded to it just before. Um, every year there's a annual meeting for a condo or for a co-op, and there are some buildings that take over. Everybody is up for election every year. Some have staggered elections, which is actually, I think, the smarter way because if you stagger it, meaning let's say you have a nine-member board, Every year, there's three people up. So every third year, you essentially have um, everybody up, right? So the first year, it's um, a three-year term. Uh, those three members go. The second next year, you have another three members that are up for a three-year term. And then right after that, you have another um, term up, three members for the board again. So not everybody is changing over. You have some continuity on the board just in case there are people that are voted off or there's new blood coming in. You still have historical context of those members. And then there's when everybody is up and then maybe you lose seven people at one time. Maybe there's sometimes a faction of the building that wants to see a change in the managing or in the board of directors or the board of managers. And, and that's when you get a totally new board, a totally new direction. And there's some happy medium. There's positives and negatives to both. But I think new blood is always really uh, important. So. Let's talk about the co-op structure. And I think today a lot of what we're going to talk about is probably geared more towards the co-op, but it's also a lot of these fundamentals are applicable to condos as well. Um, so it's just understanding the relationship of a co-op corporation to the shareholders that are there, the subtenants, the ownership structure, what that's like. So unlike a condo where the unit owner owns their apartment as real property in a fee simple ownership, the shareholder in the corporation purchased shares of the corporation in exchange for the right to live in the apartment. The rights and obligations of the co-op and the shareholder, they're broken down in the proprietary lease, which is making this almost like a rental building in a way. You have, um, so you have the stock and you have the lease. The lease gives you the terms of your residence in the apartment and the stock certificate gives you the right to hold the proprietary lease. So that creates the landlord-tenant relationship between the co-op and the shareholder. And when we go to housing court, this is interesting because a co-op could be treated as a rental building in nature since that landlord-tenant relationship exists. So the cooperative, they do, just like in a condo, so you own your apartment at a percentage of the general common interest, but in the co-op, the corporation itself owns the entire building, and that's why you're paying the mortgage for the building in your monthly maintenance payments, whereas opposed to a condo, 
your common charges are essentially just your portion. And then separately, you pay the mortgage for your unit. You don't pay an underlying mortgage. Sometimes there will be a loan on a building that's a condo and you pay for that. But a general rule is that co-ops have um, co-ops do have the underlying mortgage, which also and it enables you to write off as part of your tax deduction letter a portion of that interest that you're paying. So when we figure out what everybody should be paying, we look at the Schedule A in the offering plan that has all of the apartments and it has the shares, um, which apartments get what shares, and then we match that up to a per unit, a per share amount, and that's where the monthly maintenance is. So you could look at that. You could look at the Schedule A just knowing what um, shares are allocated to different apartments. You know that the proprietary lease is there that spells out the responsibility of the landlord and also the resident um, that's living in there. Um, an important thing to note while we have the proprietary lease and we have that relationship between the co-op and the shareholder, when a shareholder subleases out their apartment to a third party, the management or the board doesn't have a relationship with that third party that everything has to go through the shareholder because that's who the relationship is with. So if there's any sort of house rules violations, or if we need to get access into the apartment, we don't really run that through the subtenant because they're not part of the apartment. We really run that through the shareholder, and that's to make sure that they're involved in everything and, and that's who's ultimately responsible for it. So the first piece of information that I would want to walk you through is the cooperative's bylaws. So this is the document that goes into detail to give the board its structure from how many board members are permitted, the voting process to put them in office, how many board meetings should be held per year, and it's just also basing operating structure and um, how to change and um, amend the bylaws is also mentioned. So a lot of the questions that we f um, focus on when we are asked in the bylaws are how is the board elected during what type of meeting? So it's going to go into um, how your annual meeting should look, what a quorum is made up of, where you're supposed to hold the annual meeting, when you're supposed to ha have it. You know, a lot of um, a lot of bylaws actually do say around May or June that or September, depending on the bylaws, I think most of them are probably boilerplate template that's been used over and over again. But this is really going to say the board should be made up of X amount of directors or not fewer than this many, not more than this many. Typically, um, anywhere from five to nine is a normal range of board members. And you can only really increase or decrease them at an annual meeting. And that's also spelled out in the in the bylaws. So the agenda for the annual meeting um, is also in the bylaws. So that's going to walk us through. And I don't have one in front of me, but off the top of my head, it's usually calling the, the meeting to order. It's going through a roll call, which is the board members um, basically standing up there and saying, you know, roll call. Everybody announce that they're here. Or you could waive that. We have sign-in sheets at the front, so we normally have that waived and, and nobody has to, you know, if you're having 100 units represented, nobody's going to want to go through and, and roll call their name out. Also, an examination of the proxies is something that usually gets uh, waived and seconded and then, you know, you move forward in the agenda. But we, as we sign people in, we also do investigate and see what the proxies are, who's holding them, who signed um, for them making sure that the ballots are given out to the right person. Um, the next thing that we have is the uh, reports of the officers and the committees. Um, we have the reading of the minutes from the last year's annual meeting. Uh, sometimes that also gets waived and we send out um, to all the shareholders or to the unit owners, we can have a copy available to them of the minutes from the last meeting. And generally, anyway, they're pretty um, 
low-key and just bullet points of what happened last year. So it's not going to be a play-by-play of all the um, questions and answers that came through, but it's going to say you know uh, the, the various people that gave reports, the accountant, the attorney, the managing agent, the board, and then um, we can give that. Um, after that, you have also the election. Um, depending on if there's more more people running than there are seats, you may have an election. If you do have an election, you have what's called inspectors of election. And those are the people that are um, tasked with ensuring that the vote was tabulated in a fair way. And it's usually somebody that's appointed by the uh, president of the board and somebody who does not have a any skin in the game uh, per se. So it's somebody that's not running for the board and it's usually a shareholder. A lot of time also as the managing agent, we could be tapped as an inspector of election or we could work with the inspectors of election because typically what happens when we do an annual meeting, we already have a spreadsheet on Excel and we have a laptop and we walk through how we set that up for the inspectors of election, what the various columns and rows all tabulate to, how. And then we do the, um, the tabulation on the spreadsheet with their watching over our shoulders and being our second set of eyes to make sure that what we're putting in there is correct, truthful, and that everything is going. Um, so after the election, things usually slow down, but typically the accountant will visit, give an update on the financial reports for the last year. Uh, any board members that are there as committees can also give information too. Um, so... I went through the board members. I went through the board number. Are board members uh, collecting salaries? No. In the bylaws, usually it says, um, I've never seen one that doesn't say it, but board members are not uh, taking salaries. The reason that they're there is to increase the value of their um, holdings, their apartment, decrease operating expenses, just like as managing agents we do too, and also making sure that your building is running smoothly. So it's a thankless job. I always say it's very hard to get paid for it, and it's even harder to do it for free. So I think anytime that you have somebody that is really in it for the best interest of the building and not for themselves, they deserve a thank you and not a, uh, a nasty email because everybody is pouring over um, the building on their free time and sometimes on their work time too, and it's taking away from their lives. Um, it also goes into the, what are the roles of the officers once appointed? How do we remove an officer of the board? How can we remove a board member completely, which are two different things? How can the board, um, appoint replacement members? How can they call a special meeting of the shareholders? So if we're going through tip and I'm going through typical cases, not, um, everybody is going to have the same bylaws. There's versions out there that have been amended. Some have just been written differently, but typically if there's a troublemaker on the board, let's say they're the vice president, let's say they're the president. It could be any officer and I can go through the officers after, but, um, the board itself has the authority typically to remove an officer from their position. So, if I'm, the, if I'm the president and everybody hates me and I'm throwing barbs all over the place and I'm not letting the, the board as a whole work, the board collectively could vote to take me out of the presidency. But can they take me off of the board? Usually no. The way that typically you would get rid of a board member completely off the board would be have a special meeting for that purpose and then have a majority or a supermajority, depending on what your corporate documents are writing, to remove them and it would have to go to a vote from the building and then the building presumably or the board rather would have the ability to replace that member with somebody else that they wanted to for the remainder of the term. Um, 
And this is pretty much in line with how a board appoints a replacement member. So if I'm moving to uh, California and I've decided that I'm, I'm getting off of the board, I've given notice, I've resigned. So now what does the board do? We have six months to go. We don't want an, we don't want an even number because it could be a three, three stalemate. We need that seventh person. So typically if, if there are a lot of buildings that have it written in the bylaws that will say, you can now, the board themselves can uh, appoint somebody for the remainder of that term. There are some buildings that I do have where if it's within a time frame between now and the annual meeting, it goes left vacant and then it gets put up for the vote at the, at the next annual meeting. And special meetings and annual meetings, they all pretty much get called the same way. A lot of the bylaws will call for anywhere from between 10 days and 40 days from uh, the actual meeting itself. You have to give notice. I've seen some condos that purely just say no more than 10 days can you give notice, which really doesn't give much of a notice so that everybody can be there. But what we'll do in those cases when we want to get a quorum is we'll put an informal notice out or up in the building, say, hey, reserve the date. This is going to be an annual meeting or a special meeting, and this is why you should come. Uh, typical bylaws, they're broken down into different sections known as articles. I'm not going to go through all of them, but if you email me, I can send you like a typical bylaws. Again, if you want to email, it's nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com, nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. Um, articles are going to be the purpose of the business, um, meetings of shareholders. You've got your annual, you've got your special, you've got your article three, which is director's. And that's going to go into the number of them. It's going to go into the election, a quorum. What does a quorum mean? Well, a quorum means 51% of the people are going to be there at an annual meeting in most cases. And a quorum for an actual board member is just going to be a majority of board members. So if you have a seven-person board, once you have four people, you have a quorum and you can start doing business. If you don't have a quorum, either in an annual meeting or in a um, board meeting, then you really can't do business and it's just an informational meeting. And this is especially true at the annual meeting. So if we, if we start and we don't have a quorum and we know we're not, we just take minutes as it's an informational meeting and there can be no vote. And then we usually leave it up to those shareholders that are there if they want to reopen the meeting, adjourn, put out a notice to have another meeting with another vote or if they want to keep the board the same as it is. And that really depends on them. Um, sometimes you'll have 50 people and only one person wants to go through the process again. So the, it's a, the mob mentality wins. Um, what, so article three is going to be what happens in vacancies. And we talked about vacancies and resignations, removals. It could also be maybe a death of a board member and how the board goes on their own to taking care of that and putting somebody in their place. Um, also, the adoption of the House Rules. The House Rules is a very important document that we use internally for all of the shareholders, residents, unit owners, whoever that may be living in the building. And it spells out what you're allowed to do in the building and what you're not allowed to do in the building. And um, very important piece of information for the House Rules is that if you're going to adopt House Rules, that you make sure to also adopt a fine schedule for those House Rules. Because if you don't, and the board is going to be putting arbitrary amounts on different accounts, you know, oh, you, you had an illegal sublet, that's $1,000. Oh, you didn't t dry off the gym equipment, that's $50. You know, if you don't have that written down and that's just an arbitrary thought, if you ever go to housing court or court, those aren't really going to hold up because those are considered to be arbitrary and not part of a defined policy. So my recommendation is whenever you're doing house rules, you make sure that you send it out to all residents, shareholders, unit owners, with the fine schedule, and they also sign off and say, 
yes, we've read it. Yes, we understand it. And we, we understand that there's um, fines attached to these and these are the fines. So that will save you a lot of money down the line when you can't collect. Instead, you'll be able to collect because of that. Um, Article four is the officers, the election and removal of the officers. So when you're running for the board, you don't actually run for a position. So uh, some people say, you know, I'm running for president when they give a speech, but they're not actually running for president. What they're doing is they're running for the board and it's up to the board at that point. Once the first meeting starts after the annual, they all get together and they say, okay, I want to make uh, Joe the president. Do I hear any seconds? And then you go through the line, you go vice president, you go um, treasurer, you go secretary. So the board themselves, are appointing the officers. And typically it's those four officers. It's president, vice president, treasurer, and secretary. And we can go into what they do later. Um, now, on removal of the officers, I said before, if they really want to remove an officer, the board has typically the authority to do that, and they can do that on their own. Um, the duties of the individual offices are also broken down into that Article 4, and then Article 5 is the proprietary lease. Um, and I'm going to go a little bit into that. And, you know, throughout the bylaws, the rest is um, just uh, the basic housekeeping of the corporate structure, uh, capital shares, indemnification, negotiable instruments, what your fiscal year is, how the budget's to be delivered. Um, so that leads me to the proprietary lease, which is really important. So this is the document that creates that landlord-tenant relationship between the co-op corporation and the shareholder that's purchased the shares in the corporation. Of all the cooperative's documents, this um, is the one that we probably as a management company refer to day to day when dealing with shareholders. Uh, it spells out the date that the shares were purchased, how many shares are attributed to the apartment, what apartment the lease is for, the rights and the obligations of the shareholder, the obligations of the cooperative corporation, and also when the lease expires. And that is really super important too. Um, when is the lease expiring? So. If you look at your proprietary lease, most of them at this point in 2019, 2020 era, it should be past 2060, maybe even 2099, which is a lot of what our co-ops are extending theirs right now to. And the, there's a very good reason for this. And I've said this a lot um, on past videos, and I always say this in meetings as well. So a typical mortgage is probably 30 years. Um, it could be 15, it could be 30 for a shareholder when they're taking out a mortgage on their shares. Remember not taking a mortgage out on real property, they're taking it out on short sh uh, shares of the corporation and that's what's being held. The stock certificate is what's being held by the lender. So if they see that a, a proprietary lease is expiring within 20 years, but they have a 30 year mortgage, oh no, like what happens when their collateral just kind of evaporates? So banks, they get smart and they say, okay, you have, let's say, 20 years left on your proprietary lease. We need something in writing saying that you're going to be extending the proprietary lease past the date of our um, collateral expiring. So what we'll do is we'll say, okay, um, draft a resolution, have it approved by the shareholders. Um, and remember, you're given in the bylaws, you're given the, the way to ratify all of these documents. And the board will then extend the proprietary lease until such date. And typically a good, a good date for now is 1231.99. That's good to remember. So what are common questions that are answered by the proprietary lease? 
whose responsibility is it to repair my window or to wash it? You know, there's a very big section called the repairs by the lessee, and that's going to spell out everything that's your responsibility versus the corporation. Um, and that's really going to be important day to day because we get all these work orders. You know, I have a leaky sink. I have my windows won't stay open. Um, my lights just went out. Like, how do we how do we parse through that and figure out what's going to be the shareholder or the unit owner responsibility? Well, we're talking about a proprietary lease, so this is just going to be shareholders. We're just talking about a co-op right now. Um, am I responsible for the plumbing? Am I am I responsible for structural repairs? What services is the corporation providing? What happens when my apartment is damaged due to fire or other? If my apartment is damaged completely, will my lease expire? Uh, terraces and balconies, who's responsible for that? Quiet enjoyment of the property, what does that mean? You know, you ha everybody has the right to quiet enjoyment and what's called the warranty of habitability. So if you're not able to quietly enjoy, and I don't mean quietly like you're sitting inside a locked room with padding that you can't hear anything. You know, this is New York City. You're going to expect to hear some things, but there should be a level of quiet that is adopted, especially on quote unquote night hours, which is typically 10 p.m. to 8 a.m. or so, you know, no musical instruments, no loud TVs, just be respectful of your neighbor. I always say just be a good person, be a good neighbor and everybody should survive okay. Um, how is my maintenance, which is considered to be rent in the proprietary lease to be paid? What are the late fees? Uh, can the board update the house rules on their own? Who can use the apartment? Who's considered to be a sublet? Who gets survivorship rights? All of these things are really important um, that could be found in the proprietary lease um, documents. And if you ever have any questions about what you are um, responsible for, it's always right there. And I would say as a board member or even as a normal shareholder, you should always know what your documents say because to have more knowledge is much better than the other. Um, can the co-op recoup expenses related to the apartment? How is the lease terminated? What are the unsold shares and what rights do those holders have? So when you have a holder of unsold shares or you have a sponsor entity, what are their rights? Typically, they don't have to get board approval to sell, um, to rent, to use an apartment as their office. You know, They have all these because they protect themselves when they convert the building and they want to make sure that if, as the investor, they don't have to go to the board for everything. But you as a shareholder... You have to abide by all of these rules. So knowing what's going to need to be done in order to sell sublease, maybe there's a flip tax, maybe these are put into their, um, those documents. So you should read those documents for those purposes as well. Um, so we talked about the pr proprietary lease expiration date, which is really important. Um, recommend going out to 2099 if that's the case. So let's talk about the officers. So, Anywhere from typical, as I said, five to nine officers is common. If you have a really small building, it could be three. Um, tip, the officers, are, as I said, they're appointed by the board at the very first meeting after the annual. Um, so during the election, you're only there for the board members. Board members then get together, and now you're you know vying for who's going to be president. So what's the president do? The president, they're the leader of the board and typically the board member who works most intensively with the management company. So we're th you're helping us or we're helping you, depending on the, the, the relationship there. Properly set the agenda, uh, make sure that all of the projects are moving forward, lead the meetings. So you're really the go-to person uh, for, the, for the management company on the day-to-day -day because 
the board has hired you, not hired, but voted for you to be the president, voted for you to be the one in charge of the board, to be the mouthpiece of the board when, you know, we need a quick decision. Uh, we need to get some more information. You need us to do something. So it's instead of having five or nine people that are constantly on the email, sometimes it's easier just to delegate to one person that has the time and has the energy to act as the president and to work with us to efficiently manage the property. An important note, um, that although the president is the leading the board and the agenda, it's very important to note that there's only one vote for the president. So just because you have titles doesn't mean that you're more important for the voting process. So if I have a vote and you're on the, you know, if you're the president and you're on the losing side of a vote, you're only one vote and you can't sway opinion. You can only vote your conscience and what you feel as long as it doesn't directly affect you in the sense of having a conflict of interest. Um, committees are really great to also have on boards. Why don't I jump off of the president for a minute? But committees are appointed typically by the president of the board, and they can be sales and leasing committees. They could be lawn committees. It could be a quality of life committee. So these are committees that are appointed by the board. Sometimes they have a board member plus non-board members. And what they do is they go at the request of the board and handle a specific task, and they can come back um, with their recommendation. They can't make decisions, but they can recommend. So they recommend to the board, we should spend $1,000 on landscaping in the front. The board says, okay, no problem. And then they get the money, and they run with whatever project they had working on. But again, they can't make decisions. What's the vice president? The vice president, they're the backstop to the president. So when the president is unable to attend the meeting and lead through the agenda or through the various topics, the vice president will step in. In addition, the VP makes up an integral part of the executive committee and often deals with the property manager throughout the monthly interactions between meetings. So you really, depending on the building, could be vice president and president together. Sometimes it's just uh, the vice president acting when the president is not available. The treasurer... Um, so the treasurer is really an underrated and really important uh, position on the board. And I highly recommend that somebody with some sort of an accounting background be the treasurer and not just somebody that is on the board and needs to have some sort of a position. Because this is we're seeing so much financial information come through monthly from both a management company's office, from the New York City Department of Finance. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of moving parts. It, it's pretty complex. So if you have somebody that really has an accounting background or is great with numbers, try them out first. Um, see if they can kind of work with you and work with the agent uh, to make sure that your building is running as smoothly as possible. So the treasurer, the functions that they undertake obviously vary building to building and board to board. But depending on the level of financial experience that the treasurer has and the complexities of your building's financials, the treasurer will be in charge of leading the board through its financial paces along with management companies, controller, and our financial team. What are the typical duties of a treasurer? So they include oversight of the co-op or the condo's accounts and coordinating transfers. Maybe we need to transfer from the reserve to the operating. They're, they should be the ones that are knowledgeable on these topics and also approve of them. Financial planning with regards to the reserves and the investments Overview of the monthly financial reports generated by the management company. Working with management and the, and the co-op or condos accountants to ensure that the financial statements presented by the accountant are true, correct, and accurate. 
they should have every piece of financial data that the accountant has. And we as a managing company, remember I'm a manager in my day trade, um, we are providing the board treasurer and the accountant the very same paperwork. And we send that monthly to them so that when the audit comes around once a year, they already have all the documentation. And when they come into the office, they're just checking to make sure that everything is as we said and that we have original copies of everything that we sent. So it's really important that the that the financial person on the web on the uh, board who is going to be the treasurer, if that is the case, really see sees what we are sending monthly, digest it, have any questions, let your management company know. You're also going to be analyzing the year to date versus the budget and ensuring proper classifications. You're going to be working with the management company to edit the proposed yearly budget, present all of the above and more to the board as routine updates. The best boards that I've seen are the boards that the treasurer or the managing agent has answers for most things at the board meeting. And you can tell us why there are variances. What is the reason for it? Um, sometimes there's fluctuations in oil. You know, you, you spend a lot less in heating in July than you do in February. And sometimes there's swings on that. And we can answer that easily. We can see that on the actual um, income statement when it's, you know, we're seeing the variances. We're seeing... Are you positive or negative based on your budget and why? So that's what the, the treasurer does. They're really important um, for keeping track of all of your dollars and cents. Uh, the secretary. So the secretary of the board has a lot of roles. So you could be keeping a book of all shareholders and their contact information. I mean, that's old school. That's, in the, that's actually in the bylaws. But typically your management company, if you have one, is going to keep a spreadsheet of that or our, our software just spits that out. But you have complete access to it, of course. Um, you're responsible as the secretary for sending out all official communication, for preparing any newsletters if your building provides them, signing the stocks and leases when there's transfers. And that can also be with the president or vice president. The stocks typically have two signatures. The proprietary lease has one. So what we're doing is we're shipping off all that data to the all the hard paperwork to the board. They sign, give it back to us for the transfers and, and all the sales. And also doing all the minutes um, of all the meetings. So the secretary is going to be at the meeting, going to take the minutes of the meeting so that the board could say, this is what happened last month. When you get together at the next month, you can have a rolling record of all of the decisions that were made. And a very important point on minutes that I want to get into they should not be, and I've done a video on this too, they should be as sparse as you can think um, to make them. So the only thing that should be in minutes is the name of the corporation or the condominium, the date, the time, the attendees, and the motions that were made and approved. Everything else is just fluff and doesn't need to be in there because minutes are a legal document and they can be used you in discovery, used against you in discovery. They could, anytime you have a lawsuit opened up against the building, you could have minutes right there. Um, I've had it before where I'm being deposed and they have the minutes that um, have been typed up from the building and you can't get anything off of those minutes. And I've had opposing counsel off the record say, well, th these are great minutes because it gives me nothing to work with. And, and that's really what you want. You want just, just the motions, just as they're approved. Um, so now that we've gone through how do you get on the board, how do you replace a board member? How do you become an officer? Um, let's talk about codes of conduct, board member confidentiality. So being on a board is an important 
uh, thing that you are doing in your life. It's important for your investment. It's important um, that you keep everything as confidential as possible. And you may be married to somebody or living with somebody that is also a shareholder or a unit owner, and they're not on the board. And technically, you're not supposed to tell them anything either. So, so a lot of the buildings that we have actually, and I found that this happened from maybe some boards that had an issue with um, somebody with loose lips. And they said, what can we do to make sure that nobody is spilling the beans? Because somehow all of this information is getting out and it's not, it's not pleasant to come home and have emails from people in the building, you know, as a board member that are saying, you know, you talked about this at the meeting and why, but nobody should know that, you know, these are personal confidential conversations that are, uh, happening for the business, for the corporation as, as a whole. We know that you can never make anybody happy, but keeping keeping on top of your confidentiality and making sure that nothing leaves the boardroom, it not only helps you to properly manage and not worry about what the shareholders are thinking on the day-to-day, but it also allows the board members that are there to speak openly and not fear reprisal from the shareholders. It everybody can say their piece without worrying what's going to come the next day from people that are not inside that room. So this board member, I can email this out also to anybody that sends me an email. Again, nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. It's a sample code of conduct, and it goes into the conduct and the personal behavior of the, the of the board members, communication and official information, how to um, communicate. Are we doing email? Are we doing... Um, are we doing just in person? Are we doing whatever it may be? What fraudulent and corrupt behavior is and how not to do it. Record keeping and use of information, use of shareholder resources, any conflicts of interests. Um, and every every board member should sign and date this with the witness showing, and we keep these on file, showing that they read and understand it. So when I said about the house rules a little while ago and I said make sure that everybody gets a copy, they sign it off that they got a copy, we like to have paperwork to back up what we send out, and this is no different. So, a community for a board member confidentiality should also be uh, something that you work for. Um, so that's that. So, what what are the house rules? So, the the house rules are the document that each resident should receive prior to moving into the building, and they're going to switch house rules from time to time because the board has the approval through the offering plan, through the bylaws, to amend the house rules from time to time. Um, so we're going to be continually sending this out. So the house rules apply to all the shareholders and unit owners and sublets, any tenants that are there and the, and by the board placing both the rules and the fines, as I said, for breaking them, we can ensure that they will be enforceable in a court of law. The house rules from the initial offering plans tend to be boilerplate and outdated, so a lot of buildings have chosen to update them on their own. And in the last few years, a few things have come out that have really made it so that the boards had to update the house rules. Like with the smoking policies, now every year every building has to give their updated smoking policy, and it also has to be posted in the uh, in a conspicuous area in the in the building. So because this is becoming a house rule now, we're seeing most buildings that are taking the opportunity to go through the house rules, take out anything that doesn't apply anymore because a lot of these were done in the 70s and the 80s and just don't apply it. You know, life has changed and the way that we communicate with people has changed, the way that people access information has changed. So it's good to have everything up and running. Um, so recent amendments to the house rules that we're seeing included, they relate to Airbnb or similar illegal 
renting without board approval. And by the way, Airbnb and those short-term rentals, they are illegal in New York City and violate the New York City hotel law. Also, unauthorized use of building-provided wireless internet, direction to, um, to provide complaints in writing to the board or management through the email addresses, prohibitions of hoverboards, because those remember those hoverboards were fire hazards a few years ago, and I haven't heard of any fires lately. Maybe they fixed it, but it's still something that we don't want to have in, an, in the building. And anything else that's a 21st century issue that didn't exist back then is good to put in the house rules. One thing that a lot of buildings do, and I highly recommend this, is that they now require a yearly proof of homeowner's insurance to be provided to management once a year. It not only protects the shareholders' contents, but also the neighbors and the co-op as a whole, should there be an issue, damage, or loss of property. And it could be from a vendor that was on site that got hurt while doing work in your apartment. It could You left the, the faucet open and you overflowed downstairs. A, a fire started in your unit. Or your stuff got damaged from somebody else. But uh, making sure that everybody has um, homeowner's insurance or renter's insurance is uh, going to ca- basically stop a lot of heartache. Because I've seen people lose their entire lives with a fire or a flood and they didn't have insurance. And for a few hundred bucks a year, they could have had not their stuff back, but it could have been replaced. As long as we don't lose people, we're very happy. But obviously things are very important to people too. So protect it. And it also protects you. And we'll do more insurance podcasts, episodes on um, in the future with a few different insurance brokerages. But I believe with homeowners and renters insurance, if your personal effects are with you when you're on vacation and they get stolen, it's still covered. So it's still a worthwhile um, tool to have in your belt. Um, one of the things that the board is going to look at is overseeing, especially on the co-op side, sales, leasing, and refinance applications. On the condo side, if there's a right of first refusal um, and you and you have the right to review either sales or leasing of apartments, then the board is going to do that. So we're as the ma- as the management company is going to take in all of that information from the brokers in the provided format that the board has approved. The board is then going to have to renew it. Um, so what we do, we can recommend that beyond the normal package, maybe include some riders and make sure that your management company is including them also, um, in your sales package, we, we definitely want to say acknowledgement of no illegal renting or short term rentals, um, an acknowledgement that occupant, that the occupants will provide keys to the staff and will be responsible for any and all damages if it's not provided. Keys uh, is always a touchy subject with buildings and residents that don't trust either the staff there. Maybe they don't trust somebody in the building to have a copy of their key. But everybody has to understand that it is New York state law that keys are to be provided to the landlord or to the management. And we have a rider that says that if you don't, you're going to be responsible because one door could be $1,200, but waiting to get in could cause so much more damage if there's a flood or if there's a fire. And then you're going to be responsible for all of those extra costs that for the time and for the effort. Um, in the sublet package, um, we also have the acknowledgement of no illegal renting and short-term rentals and the keys. But we also say that there should be an acknowledgement signed by the shareholder that, and also by the sublet or the, the um the lessee, the person that's coming in to lease the apartment if it's a condo, that there's, um, should the shareholder or the unit owner not pay maintenance, that the subtenant or the tenant will pay the co-op or condo their rent until the balance is recaptured. And this is um, also important to note that 
On this, we also ensure that the arrangement does not constitute a landlord-tenant relationship with the building. We're just capturing the shortfall to make sure that if the funds run dry from the person that's supposed to be paying, then we'll we'll capture it from the subtenant. Um, also, there's some new riders. Uh, shareholder will, will provide a stove knob cover to any dwelling where there is a child under the, under the age of six years in residence pursuant to local law 117 of 2018. And that was when uh, that was really a reactive law to um, a set of kids that were playing with a stove and I believe caused a fire. And I don't remember if somebody got hurt during that incident, but it was enough either way to make sure that if there's any children under the age of six residing in the apartment, or it could be similar to window guard forms where if they're there for a few hours, even a year, that could constitute an apartment that needs it. But now the owner or the shareholder has to provide stove knob covers for all um, ovens. And if you can't because you can't fit it, there's, I believe, a form to be filled out and provided to the city as well. So what do applications always include? They should always have um, the names of all purchasers or occupants. It should have a contract of sale or the lease agreement. It should have a credit application, two years of tax returns, W-2 forms, two months pay stubs, business, personal, landlord references. If you're purchasing a copy of the commitment letter, house rules, um, we always include those in the actual application themselves and wait for a house rules acknowledgement to be signed. Remember, I said house rules put them out there, acknowledge that they're read and agreed to abide by them. And that's what this is going to do. Any lead paint forms, bed bug forms, uh, smoke and CO detector forms, sprinkler forms. So this is um, all the stuff that goes into there. And I know we're kind of veering off topic with getting into sales and leasing, but I did do uh, a prior podcast and it was probably episode two. If you go through the podcast app, where however you're listening, but it was two and it was, I think the title was called denied or approved. And we went, I think about 45 minutes just on sales and leasing applications. So there's just a lot of information out there um, to do that. So what I wanted to do, um, I think I gave you a good start on how you get on the board, how you become an officer of the board, how you're removed as an officer of the board and some of the other topics on there and some of the other paperwork. Um, so we covered the bylaws. We covered the proprietary lease. Um, we covered the house rules. We covered the sales and leasing applications. And uh, one thing that, you know, if you get into a monthly routine with the board and sometimes it could be just a phone call. It doesn't have to be in person anymore. We do a lot of... Um, I use Uber conference actually as my conference call app and it's free and I I'm grandfathered into some old plan for free, but I think the newer plans are limited to 45 minutes before they cut you off. But that should be enough if you're doing just a quick call, just to catch up um, for 45 minutes, or you could do, you know, monthly meetings in person. If you're giving, there's a way for you to not have to worry about, giving notice to everybody for every meeting after the annual meeting during your first meeting when you're appointing officers i would say pick a day of the month okay everybody we're going to do the third thursday of every month does everybody agree yes great then that means that you don't have to give a notice of a meeting and it, everybody knows that the third thursday of the month is there so if you don't um if you don't announce it 
that's fine. You don't have to, in the bylaws, it calls for um, notice of meeting. You waive that now because everybody knows that it's the third Thursday of every month. So that's a good topic, um, a little thing for you to know as well. So if you've been lucky enough to join the board, now you're going to be up for a year of hard decisions and financial decisions and um, personal decisions because there's a lot of interpersonal issues that happen between different board, uh, not only board members, but also residents and shareholders. And you're going to rely on both committees and your management company, if you have one, to really ride through the storm. But I have a welcome to the board packet that goes into a lot more stuff than this, but I, I did not want to double down on some of the topics that I've talked about in other podcast episodes. So I, I kept this, even though we're 45 minutes in, I kept it kind of short just to the um, to the documents and to the officers and how to get off. But if you want to leave the board, all you have to do is resign. And then, as I said, the board could replace you um, based on the um, bylaws and all the um, the leeway that they have through there. Again, if you want to email us, nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com, nycrealestatepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Mark Levine, your host, and I. if you're in this deep, I thank you for listening. And if you could share the podcast with whoever you think may be interested in real estate in the New York City area, that would be amazing for me. Uh, just as a side note, I am uh, one of the owners of EBMG, property management company that manages over 100 buildings in the New York City area. And this is my 21st year doing it. So I really actually enjoy educating everybody. And if you have anything that you wanted to add to this or if you wanted anything uh, covered in a future episode of the podcast, more than happy to have you uh, email me. And maybe you can even come on and we can talk about it in person. So check us out all over social media at NYC Real Estate Podcast. If you want to call me, 212-335-2723, extension 201. Again, that's 212-335-2723, extension 201. We look forward to educating you in the future. Until next time.